Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to Soliloquy for a Cat off of the 2019 CD, Songs from Home, by father and daughter duo Michael O'Brien and Emily O'Brien. And Emily, who's not on that cut, plays recorder. And she doesn't play the type of recorder that you and I played back when we were in elementary school, although I'm sure that's what she started on. But you should hear how she plays the ones she has now. They're absolutely terrific. And hopefully you get a chance to listen to those at some point. But first, we're going to be chatting with Michael Kent O'Brien. And let me read you what he writes on his bio, the first line. I propped a foot up on the seat of my tricycle under a red cowboy hat, aided by a guitar whose upper bout formed two round Mickey Mouse ears. I let wail a passionate four-year-old's rendition of Home on the Range. That was 1958. It's now May 2020, and Michael O'Brien is on the phone with me. Michael, how are you? I'm good, Todd. Thanks. How are you? I'm, I'm wonderful. And that instrumental you did, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's actually two pieces in one. Is it, Am I correct? Yeah, it's put, it put together. Uh, you know, books sometimes have Fords by famous people, so I'm hanging on to Bach's coattails <laughs> with, a, with a forward by J.S. Bach. That's kind of sacrilegious, but I don't care. <laughs> they just seem to fit. <laughs> now, did they seem to fit like you were playing Bach one day and then you just transitioned into your piece, or did you do your piece and say, well, you know, that Bach might work there? Yeah, the second. I have been working on both of them, and um, there's it's sort of a profound theme and and uh, that prelude of Bach from the lute suite is is um is well known among lute players and early music people and it has a certain profundity about it and I just felt I could I could capitalize on <laughs> Bach's profundity and help my own piece out. <laughs> Well, we will send the royalty to J.S. Bach. <laughs> right. <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about the CD itself. Oh, gosh, thanks. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Um, Emily and I have been making music since Emily was a little, little kid. Um, her sister as well. So the three of us, we grew up playing a lot of music together and singing together. Um, and um, Emily started playing the recorder when she was like two years old or so she still plays those regular recorders but um she she's that really a world-class player and so it's not just honking out melodies that we all did in school <laughs> but um uh yeah she's a professional musician she lives in boston she plays lots of early music she's played with um martin perlman and and some others up there in early music new york and she goes around the world giving giving concerts and master classes. And we had always uh, threatened each other with making a CD together at some point. Um, and so it finally came to fruition. It was last 
it was a year ago before the uh, Boston Early Music Festival. She called me up and said, Dad, you know about that CD? And I said, yeah, I am. It'd be really great to make sometime. She said, yeah, well, we need to do it now. <laughs> she wanted to have it done for the Boston Early Music Festival, and I didn't see that happening. But she said, no, 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 we'll do it. We'll do it. So um, I got to thinking, and then I, I met had met Ken Person, who is a wonderful recording engineer. Um, she had worked in Nashville for years and years and years and has recorded for Tommy Emanuel and Stephen Bennett in particular. And um, so I said, well, let me give Kim a call and see if she'd take us on. So she was intrigued by the project, and one thing led to another, and um, and there it was. So we, we decided that we we're going to put a, mostly tunes and music that we had played together while she was growing up and some other things that we just enjoy playing together now. And it's um, it turned out wonderfully. I'm just very excited by it. Now, to, there's a lot of questions I want to ask you about the CD, mm -hmm. CD but going back to the recorder, what okay. drove Emily to take the recorder past to her, you know, elementary school level oh. to become a professional musician on the recorder? Um, she loves the instrument. She never put it down. Um, when she was little, I would play little tunes to her and, and her sister, Julie, and they, they would go to sleep to that. And I guess that sort of sunk in her soul somehow. But um, she just never put it down. By the time she was nine years old, she could play two at once in harmony. It was amazing. She really had an expert. And um, she just never put it down, loved it. She had a great teacher. She she studied with Scott Rice and Susan Cooper. Did a double major in recorder and French horn, and um, she's just brilliant. I know I'm biased, but she's just brilliant in that way. And um, and so she eventually decided she was going to focus on the recorder. And so she picked up this modern instrument made by a German company, um, which has an extended range and extended dynamic capabilities. And um, uh, you really can play mainstream flute music on it, but you have to. It requires some other skills, some different fingering and things like that. But um, the main reason is she just loves it. <laughs> now, is the modern version which she plays mm -hmm. made from wood, or is it plastic yeah. or metal? No, it's wood. It's wood. All the good instruments are wood. Um, and it has a few keys on it, and it has a movable um, a, a throat, an opening there. It can be moved and adjusted, and it's quite, quite amazing. Um, and she's made a few... Uh, labia for that that give different sounds and she's been experimenting with that and working with the company um so uh, gosh she's one of the few people in the world who really can play this she has another album of her own out where it's entirely on that recorder um the album that we made together she's playing probably i guess a dozen different recorders on that album um, from Renaissance instruments to Baroque instruments and to this modern instrument. But she has a solo album called Fantasies for Modern Quarter where she does pick up some traditional And um, it's all on this modern instrument. With, it has keys and it's ebony. It's now, wonderful. Boy, she plays it. It's great. <laughs> now, for those people listening who've never heard her play, or other yeah. than the song, we, you know, Soliloquy for a Cat... Mm -hmm. Uh, that we played at the beginning, how could they get a hold of either the downloadable um, CD or her sure. other CD and so forth? Just go to um, uh, to her website. That's the best way. She's got the, she's, she's more <laughs> technically astute than I am. She knows how to connect all this. So it's up on her website, emily at emilysdomain.org. Or if you just Google Emily Recorder, Emily O'Brien Recorder, you'll find it. She's like top of the list. 
Now, going back to you on the recorder mm -hmm. recording, what yeah. guitars did you play, or what instruments did Good. you play on the um, CD? I played I, both instruments I made. I played the classical guitar, the nylon string, which is really my. You cut out there for a second, so. Instrument. We did a. Excuse me. You you cut out there for about five seconds. Oh. So say that again. Uh -oh. Okay, no, there's a classical guitar, the first guitar I'd ever made, and then there's a steel string harp guitar with uh, six sub basses and, um, and one of those long arms that um, are so common on steel string harp guitars. So I played the two of them. I, um, now I've got some others I've made, since made a nylon harp guitar, which I just absolutely adore. The thing is just stunning. And um, that, that's where I've been playing most recently. But on that album, it's the steel string harp guitar, and, uh, and a classical guitar, mainstream Taurus-style uh, classical guitar. So be more specific for people who don't understand what you mean by a harp guitar. Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's kind of a generic name, but basically it means any version of a normal guitar with extra strings, mostly they're never fretted, they're just plucked. And the most common additional strings are bass strings, sub basses, so and they're tuned in a variety of ways. But so you'll have your main six strings and some guitars even will have like a seventh fretted string or something like that. Some nylon strings will have seven or eight fretted strings. But then there will be an additional choir of strings below that four, five, six, seven, eight additional sub bass strings. Um, which are just plucked. They're not fretted, though occasionally there are some fretted versions out there, but mainly they're just plucked. And it gives you this wonderful, magical resonance with all that extra space in the instrument and the, and the sympathetic resonance from those lower strings. Plus, you get you get an expanded musical palette from 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 those bass strings. And then if if desired, additional super trebles can be added, which again are just plucked. They're plucked as open strings. And um, so you can have as many as 21, 22 strings on one guitar. Um, this really seems like overkill, but if they're used tastefully and it can make a wonderful, wonderful sound. Of course, there's Stephen Bennett who, who only plays instruments with the sound. But none of us would be playing these instruments. When I first heard him play that, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> it was just magical. And so I said, I got to get me one of them. <laughs> so but, that, um, so those lower so, strings, yeah. when we listen to Soliloquy for a Cat, it's that boom. Yeah, it's the bass strings. Yeah, there are quite a few bass strings there. And that, that, in, that tune is tuned to... to um, a drop D tuning plus the low strings tuned to a G, which is actually, if, if the guitar were tuned normally, that's your low G on the third fret. So in if running down from the lowest main string, there's an E, then jump up. It's actually tuned down to D, but then jump up to G and then go back down to D, C, B, A, and G, sort of diatonically down from there. So you get almost, you get a, almost a full octave additional below the main string on the instrument and it's just resonates it's just it's just a wonderful sound now was it difficult for you to transition from a, a regular six string to a harp uh, oh gosh um yeah <laughs> i still haven't made the transition fully yet um uh, i have trouble extending my thumb so if I open up my thumb to pick up those low bass strings, it just creates a lot of tension in my hand. I have some theories about that. Um, I've spent most of my life, you know, 
as a musician, but my focus was get, was conducting and composing, and I'd played anything that came along, though I have my degrees in keyboards, and so I played them, you know, but it was all utilitarian, and I got paid for it. Um, but in addition to that, I, I started making instruments in 1978, and then I started shoeing horses about 15 years ago. So I've used my hands a lot and hard. I haven't abused them, but <laughs> I've got this extra mass in my fingers. That's my excuse. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a little clumsy for me to open my thumb to get down to those low bass strings. So I've, I've kind of learned that if I can find the string with my thumb and rest it on the string first and keeping my hand as relaxed as possible, then I can have some accuracy. Otherwise, I'm just bouncing around from from, from the basses to the main strings and it's, the hand just seems to go wherever it goes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of tricky for me. Others don't seem to have any problem with that. I mean, Stephen Bennett, Matt Thomas, those guys, whoa, it seems like they were born with it. It's just amazing. I have to work at it. Oh, well. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, doing shoeing horses, but let's go way back because yeah. you have a very, very interesting musical history. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so kind of take us back to when you were a kid, how you okay. got interested. I mean, we, you mentioned at the age of four you were belting out Home on the Range oh, sure. on the plastic oh, you guitar. Bet. you bet. <laughs> but then, then, then how did it, you know, progress through your life? Okay. Not only well, musically, but then how did the horseshoeing get in there and then all, all yeah. that stuff? Okay. Well, you know, my my mother's family were very poor Depression-era farmers, and they made a lot of music together. And uh, so when we were growing up, they, we just made music together. That was just life. You just accepted that. And you played whatever was lying around, and I got this Mickey Mouse guitar and played that. Um but I, my my heroes were Ted Atkins and Gene Autry as a kid, um, and uh, I had this um, um, recording of Don Quixote, and there was this flamenco guitar on there, which just was totally captivating. I just was enthralled with that sound. But anyway, so music was was just bread and butter. There was no getting out of that, and um, and of course with the farmer background and the cowboy desires i couldn't get away from horses and when i was like in um high school i was delivering newspapers on horseback in fort worth in the middle of fort worth that's a true story it's crazy but it's true all the while making music i mean i was in the bands and i remember in seventh grade i had only been playing the guitar and the piano and then the school band gave this concert and i was absolutely blown away thrown just thrown for a loop and i went racing up to the band director afterwards and i said i want to play in the band he said okay well what do you play i said piano and guitar he goes um well uh we don't we don't have many of them in the band you want to play something else so i said sure he goes well what do you want to play and i really didn't care i said oh how about trumpet he goes how about tuba <laughs> I, said, I said so what's that and he he gave me this tuba mouthpiece and said buzz your lips <laughs> so so i joined the band as a tuba player and i learned to play the tuba and i learned to love that instrument it can be so melodic and so haunting especially in the upper registers um so i played that all through high school and i my first year in college i was a tuba major but um, I also played in jazz bands and, uh, and rock bands and all of that. So I never gave up the guitar. 
um, or the piano. I ended up playing other things. I played, I was in the all metropolitan area jazz band when I was 18. It was like from DC, Maryland, and Virginia, the best high school players around. I'm not saying I was the best, but I was the only one who could play vibes, piano, and tuba at the same time. So I think that's why they took me. But, um, so yeah, I played a bunch of instruments and then I, and I always wrote music. And um, so I started off as a tuba major because people thought that's what would be a practical thing to do. You know, I learned later that practical things are not always that practical. <laughs> anyway, I got kind of tired of playing one third of an oompa-pa and, um, and I really wanted to write music. So then I changed to piano and then I changed to composition and then I went to Austria as a conductor and a composer and did that. Then I did another degree in harpsichord performance and got excited by the early music scene and um, then got connected with um, the conservator. Conservator, they called them restorers in those days at the museum in Vienna in Austria. And um, I badgered him and badgered him and badgered him until he would take me on as an apprentice. So I did that for five years in addition to all the other degrees I had. Emily was born in Austria during those days. And um, then I started making instruments and I just loved it. But um, and I'd still, I would have done that throughout my career. But, but at a certain point I realized that my own kids needed health insurance and I wasn't gonna get it with making harpsichords and pianos. So um, I started teaching and then I was lucky. I got a really fine job at the Smithsonian as a conservator of musical instruments. And um, then I started teaching and, and uh, the guitar kind of had to, you know, go onto the back burner for a while. And then, then I turned 60. <laughs> that was a few years ago. <laughs> and I woke up one morning, I'm sitting here looking at the Martin guitar that I had because when Emily graduated college a few years before that even, um, I'm saying, you know, it's time I got a really good guitar. So I got this really good Martin Dreadnought, and it was really cool. It sounds great. I've loaned it to my other daughter now. But anyway, um, I'm sitting there looking at that guitar, and I'm saying to myself, you know, I've been playing this instrument for 50 years. It's about time I took it seriously. Because, you know, I couldn't do much more than cowboy chords and boom, ching, ching, sort of strumming and sing home on the range still. <laughs> so um, I just decided I was going to take this seriously. So... Um, I did, and I've never, I've never looked back, and it's been like six, seven, seven years now, and uh, I just, I just love it. So then I'm thinking, you know, but I really need a really good instrument. I said, well, I can make an instrument with all of my skills. I'd made 50 harpsichords. I'd made one English guitar, a museum copy. So I started getting into that, and um, oh, it's just very exciting. It's just very exciting. One of the things about making guitars that I find so refreshing as a in contrast to historical work like making museum copies and making historical instruments and certainly restoration and conservation work is the design freedom with with the guitar it's like the world is open and now i've got you know 45 years experience i i understand the physics i understand all of this at a instinctive level so you know i i can trust my instincts quite a bit when i delve into a new design for a guitar or something like that and it's very refreshing if you're dealing with an historical instrument you you have to what are the historical practices what are the, what is the precedent what's the use who made it and on and on and on what were the materials how are the materials produced how was the wire drawn where was the wire made and on and on and on and those are very arcane 
debates that you have to engage in and there's there are questions that really can't always be answered but you must get into it you don't just like reinvent the harpsichord unless that's what you're deliberately trying to do but like nobody wants a modern harpsichord we want harpsichord to play Bach and so anyway that's what I love about modern guitars and uh, that's sort of that history in a nutshell now was all of your woodworking experience from the original apprenticeship working with harpsichords and so forth or were you a um, woodworker prior to that i was a woodworker but not that good <laughs> i mean listen i came from a farming family where you did what you had to do with whatever you had you know so but i, I could make some pretty good things but um in austria um i had to learn traditional cabinet making skills and i had to learn to I, I was always very, I had taken architecture and mechanical drawing in school, so I was good with pen and paper in the old style. I don't know anything about CAD drawing because I'm, I'm so old school, but at least I had that. And so um, the man I worked with, Peter Kukelka was his name, he insisted that I develop those fundamental skills with hand tools that are not used much anymore but he insisted so he made me saw out soundboard planks from a log like six hours a day for a week with a bow saw by hand and i'm not exaggerating that but but uh, i i did it and i every plank was an inch a quarter of an inch thick right out of the log and at the end of that he said harold brian now you know how to saw straight <laughs> Uh, but he was right, and the same is true with sharpening chisels, sharpening planes, knowing how to how to use a plane, and um, I developed a real sense for the wood. I, I don't know how to describe it. It's tactile and it's auditory. You can you can hear the wood, and so um, so I, I made my first dozen or so instruments entirely by hand. These are clavichords. And I did restorations for, for Peter in Vienna, and I worked with the museum. I got to know the early instruments. But that was all very traditional, and and it was wonderful to have that. And I was with him for five years, and um, it, was, it was great to, to have developed that. I made myself a traditional bench and, and so on. And then when I came back to the States, I started working with Tom and Barbara Wolf, um, uh, and they are probably the best craftsman I've ever known. They've made harpsichords for the Kennedy Center. They've made pianofortes for Juilliard. And um, I was fortunate enough to, to work with them. And I learned the, the business side of things and I learned the machine tools from them. I had never known how to use a table saw or anything like that, but I do now. Um, uh, so that's that's where that went so i was lucky i had some i had some good training and and good experiences well peter sounds like he was mr miyagi wax Who's on that? wax off <laughs> excuse me uh, you're you're um when you apprenticed in germany with uh -huh. peter he sounds okay. like a mr miyagi from the karate kid Wa uh, so, wax on oh, wax right. off <laughs> oh he was cool he was a hoot and it was actually in vienna um in the city of music and uh, guys, what what a character he was. He refused to learn to drive, and he lived outside of Vienna in an 18th century schoolhouse. And his 
transportation to the train station, he got himself a riding lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he rode the riding lawnmower three miles to the train station to, to get from his village into Vienna, where he, he taught at the, uh, at the uh, School for Applied Arts. And he, also, he was also the head conservator at the museum. <laughs> oh, what a character he was. I could go on and on and on with stories about Kukalka, but my goodness. Uh, but, but he, and he was so impassioned about, about the musical instruments because, you know, an historical music instrument is written history. There's a lot about an instrument that is uh, staring you in the face if you know what you're looking at that tells you about people, it tells you about societies it tells you about technology it tells you about how it's used it tells you about what music means to the people who made this instrument and on and on and on and and so i think aside from the skills the basic skills i learned from him um uh, his his passion was infectious and 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 i've never gotten over that i've never recovered from that passion because when i see an old instrument i start i start the heart starts to race, you know, <laughs> because it tells you so much about people. It's just, it's incredible. So, and that, that's what he was like. Now for myself and then for people listening, explain the difference between a harpsichord, clavinet, a pianoforte and a piano. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, let's see. There's, there are simple answers and there are complex answers. The simple answer is that a harps, the strings on a harpsichord are plucked. There's a there's a, a little sliver of wood on the rear end of each key lever, which is lifted by the key lever. When the front end is depressed, the rear end goes up, and that lifts a, what's known as a jack. It's something like a uh, popsicle stick, but heftier, with with a hinged tongue in it, into which is pressed a tiny piece of quill, like a feather quill. Nowadays, it's often replaced with Delrin or some, or some other type of plastic. But um, And then that little tiny piece of plastic or quill, which is about maybe four millimeters long, exposed from the jack, is shaped and carved with a, with a very sharp knife, like a scalpel or an exacto knife nowadays. And it rests underneath the string. And when it's lifted up, it just plucks the string. Just It makes a sound just like... Um, a class like it's like a steel string guitar, and um, then it's there's a little lever mechanism that pushes the quill out of the way when it falls down. So the simple answer is that a harpsichord strings are plucked. A clavichord strings are actually struck, but they're struck by a little metal blade known as a tangent, and that metal blade remains in contact with the string. Now, if you were as as in the you know the finger style players today the, a lot of those guys they play so much with just their left hand without plucking the strings with their right hand and that's very effective and that's exactly how a clavichord works the key lever ray lifts up the tangent and the tangent strikes a pair of strings tuned in unison which vibrate only from that point to the bridge and the sheer energy of the tangent striking the string is enough to set the strings in motion. So it's uh, possible then by to get a vibrato on the keyboard instrument by pushing down harder on the string, you're gonna, on the key lever, you'll stretch the strings or less you can, you can um, 
uh, release that tension on the string. So you can A, get a vibrato, you can play loud and soft. Now, because you're only striking the string at the end node, it's relatively quiet. Um, I made a clavichord once for um, uh, Christopher Hogwood, who gave a wonderful concert on it at uh, Dumbarton Oaks in Georgetown in D.C. many years ago. And um, and he's a wonderful player, and he really can play clavichord very exquisitely. He played fleets and some others. and um, uh, But he advised the audience just to rustle their programs gently instead of applauding because the instrument is so quiet that when it's the level of the applause is so great that um, you it's hard to hear it for the next piece. So the point is, this is an instrument that is very quiet, but you can play loud and soft, so it's extremely expressive. It's very simple in its mechanism, but it's very quiet. And if you think about when the instrument was actually used, it was perfectly fine. It was your home instrument inside. I mean, you couldn't bring an organ into your house to practice on. You had to have an army of guys to pump the bellows <laughs> in the church just to get the thing going. So you had to practice on something. Uh, so you had clavichords, and they could do loud and soft. They could produce a melody very much like you could sing a melody. It's wonderful. But it didn't have to compete with traffic noise and refrigerator hums and other things like that. So it was suitable to those times, and it's difficult to transplant that into modern times because we live in such a noisy world. But once you get used to it, it's a, oh, it's a, it's a wonderful, rich, beautiful sound. Um, one, I made one for the University of Nebraska uh, about 19, I guess 1990, something like that. Um, it was a pedal clavichord. It actually had two manuals plus a, a, pe a, a pedal board. It was a combination of three instruments. The two manual clavichords each had two, uh, there were two eight-foot choirs on each, each instrument, and they were both in a box. You could pull the lower instrument out, so it was now contained somewhat within the box. The upper instrument was open, so the upper instrument was not only open, it also had a shallow depth to the case, so it produced something like a nasal sound, like a nasard on an organ, and the lower manual had a deeper case and was encompassed in this box, this hollow box, and it had a very deep, resonant, mellow sound. So you know you had two manuals that um, had very different sounds, and then there was a third instrument underneath it all that had two eight-foot choirs and two 16-foot choirs for every note. So when you depress the key left, the, the, the pedal board, there was a pedal board operated by your feet like an organ. So when you hit one of those, you'd get an octave plus an octave below that all at once. You get four strings sounding together. Um, so it was, and that was a copy of an, of an instrument made in Germany in about 17, 87, I think, by Johann Gerstenberg. So I copied that and and um, for the University of Nebraska organ department because and there was a couple, there are a couple of recordings of that out there, like the trio sonatas is wonderful. Peter Marshall had done that. Um, anyway, so that's a perfect example of of an organ in the house. So in in the, in the 18th century, you know. The equivalent of the modern day spinet, which is kind of gone now, but there was a time when everyone's mainstream musical instrument in their house was a spinet piano. Well, in those days, it would have been a clavichord of some kind. And some are so small, you can just put them under your arm and carry them with you on the coach and, and play them on en route. And then I guess the piano and pianoforte, um, that is a fascinating story. And it's one that has intrigued me and caught my imagination for years and years and years um we made at tom and barbara's we made many 
uh, museum copies of forte pianos. These are late 18th century and early 19th century pianos. And the differences between those pianos and modern pianos is enormous. It's Yes, it's a hammer action that throws a hammer up against the string and it bounces off. So that's about the end of the similarities to the modern piano. But if you can imagine, um, nowadays we'll have three, sometimes even four strings for every hammer. In those days, it was just two, and, which, and they were lighter weight. The strings were generally of high carbon steel, not you know, a, a highly tempered machined industrial steel like we have today. Interestingly, you know, there's a, there's a, cord, there's a, um, a coincidence in technology with, with piano wire. Um, right when the telegraph was becoming widespread, they needed a wire that could stretch between poles at long distances without breaking under its own weight. So they developed a new technology to produce wire. And as it happened, it was great for pianos. But in the olden days, the wire was soft. The tensile strength was lower. The tension on the instrument was lower. The hammers were very lightweight. And uh, two other very important differences for players, uh, the width of the keys is much smaller and the key depth, the depression, is much shallower. So the octave span on an old piano on a pianoforte is much less i mean much less than a modern piano's octave so you don't have to work so hard i mean it's not a gymnastic event boy i tell you for me to play octaves on the piano is just a killer <laughs> i know there are people who could do that all the time but they've got these massive claws you know and i'm if i some people like errol garner you know what kind of hands he had he could reach a tenth or a you know, a, an octave and a fourth and a fifth sometime, I've heard people say. I mean, shoot, I'm lucky if I get an octave down there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, there was a time, just to give you an example of what a difference this makes for the player, I was tuning for a concert of um, um, Lily Krauss, who came to the museum, to the Smithsonian, to, to give a concert. And she had never played an early piano before, and there were two on the stage. There was a Broadwood from, from London in the late 18th century, and there was, um, 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 I forget the name of that maker, but it was a, a Walter type of piano, a Dulkin, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, um, so two late 18th century pianos that she was going to give this concert on, and she had done before. One other difference is the pedal. The, the sustaining pedal is operated by a knee lever, on these old pianos. So it's an upward motion with your knee, not a downward motion with your foot to enable the sustaining mechanism in the instrument. So she was thrown for a tremendous loop. She just she just couldn't play it. And she's a fantastic player. I just love the way she plays. And um, so at one point she was had programmed um, a Haydn sonata and uh, she said, listen, I can't possibly do this on this piano. I just am not comfortable with this. And she was very gracious about all this. So she decided that she was just going to play the Mozart little sonata in C major, the little C major sonata, you know, you with the stars in your eyes, that one, you know, which is what every little child learns when they have piano lessons from the neighborhood teacher. Anyway, so she's going to play this because she thought she could get through it. 
anyway, so she gets into it in the middle of the development section. She loses it completely. So she just, you could just see, she just rolls her eyes and she starts improvising all up and down that piano with all kinds of stuff. And it was just amazing. It just went on and on and on. So she finally ends this thing with this big, massive arpeggio down to the low C and smacks it with her finger and turns to the audience and says, a new version. <laughs> and the people are on their feet. They gave her a standing ovation. And uh, it was just amazing. But it just it demonstrates how different those early pianos are from the modern ones. And personally, I love the old pianos because they're so light. You can, you can play them with, you know, you don't need massive claws and paws and, you know, super athletic fingers to just to get the the keys down. I guess we've lost a lot of that now with the electronic instruments, but um, so uh, gosh, that's been a long tirade there about instruments. But, <laughs> um, but you know, when you think about what an instrument offers mechanically, there is bearing on what the instrument delivers musically. Um, so, you know, when you have an instrument that can, like Chopin's instrument, the key levers don't go down very far. You can fly up and down that keyboard with relative ease. Nowadays, you play Chopin on a modern piano. Of course, it's mainstream music, of course, but it requires a whole lot more physically from you than it did in Chopin's time. Is that That's probably why it is so difficult for the average piano player to play elevated music. Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure that's part of it. It's hard. Um, but, I mean, shoot, the guitar is hard, too. It is. <laughs> For me, the guitar is, 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 I love it and I've played it all my life and it really is my first love. But I've learned music and studied music with the orientation on the piano, which is linear. <laughs> you know, I, I know the scales and I know all of that inside out and my hands just fly to the right place. But the guitar fingerboard, <laughs> you know, it's not quite that simple. <laughs> and um, so it, the guitar is hard. So you, your first guitar that you, well, first of all, you decided to get away from the the piano harpsichord type of builds yeah. into the guitars because yeah. you, you you wanted a, a nicer guitar and you, you figured I can build one. What was right. the first guitar you built? I built this classical guitar that's on that CD. Um, it's a Taurus style instrument. It's my own design. Um, I got drawings of the Taurus instruments and then... Uh, John Bogdanovich has a video series. I watched that and got his drawings, but I didn't like his instrument so much. And I love the Taurus instruments, but they were designed and built with gut strings. And um, so I made some small changes. Um, so I, I thinned out the waist. I just wanted to look a little more elegant. And I was looking for some, a more of a lute-like sound than what you got on a traditional classical guitar. And the classical guitars, they have a huge upper bout and they're kind of a wide-waisted instrument and they're meant to project hugely into big spaces. And I wasn't really interested in that. Um, and I, when I wanted to go with a more with a, with an older style of sound, but yet on a modern instrument. So, so I did that. It's a typical modern um, classical scaling and uh, case depth. And I just changed the, the shape of the body a little bit and it came out wonderfully. I just, I just loved it, and I still play it every now and then. And now that's um, so that is, was my first. That is that the one that uh, your fo the photo of you playing a guitar on your about page. You're you're wearing a blue shirt. Okay. I'm, I'm oh gosh, I don't remember. Um, it could be if it's if it's a single neck 
Yes, it, uh, it is, and it's guitar. a fairly yeah, that's, fairly that's slim body. One. Yeah, yeah, that's mine. Yeah, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. If it's nylon string, yeah, that was the that was my first. And then when you got into building steel strings, mm-hmm. um, I have seen you play your double cutaway. Yeah, I have not seen, or I don't think I have. I don't, I'm pretty sure I haven't. The traditional cutaway, which is more of a, like a twelve fret. But explain to me mm-hmm. what was your reasoning for building. A double cutaway. Good. Um, there are two. Um, one, I still had my eyes on the harp guitar, and I wanted when I got to the harp guitar, I wanted to redesign the traditional Knutsen model, which is clumsy in my view, and that the bass headstock looks kind of like a an elephant seal, if you ask me. And I just thought they're they're ugly, <laughs> and I wanted something more elegant, and so, and I also wanted something practical. And in addition to that, I was enthralled with Mike Doolin's uh, double cutaway steel string models. And I thought it's a great idea, but from an engineering standpoint, it has many, many challenges. Anyway, so I had been working on the harp guitar design, and one of the changes to the traditional design for harp guitar that I did was to continue connect the sub-bass arm into a traditional Florentine cutaway with a single curve. And that means now that the joint between the neck and the body of the guitar is not at a 90-degree square joint. We've got a curve. You've got to connect the neck on a curve here. And it looks elegant. I love it that way. So that was the first thing. And then I wanted a basic body design that I could easily adapt to a traditional six string or a harp guitar with the extra arm. So that's how that came about. And um, I just highlighted that possibility when I did the harp guitar by making a two piece top. I outlined the, uh, the shape of the basic guitar body in the spruce, but the, but the continuation of the sub bass neck is in the, is in the quilted cherry, which is cool. So it really highlights the basic shape of the guitar. And so the reason behind the double cutaway six string steel string was that it was. I lost your arm. Oh. Um, the, uh, the idea with the double cutaway uh steel string six string guitar was that it's the same body shape as the harp guitar without the harp guitar arm. Now, um, how, how do you, because you have less real estate there for the neck to attach to. I'm sorry. I missed you there too. We, we lost it. Okay. On the double cutaway style, six string, yeah. you have less real estate in the body in the upper bout to attach the neck to. So how do you keep it? Strong enough to withstand the uh, oh, tension. Oh, good, right? Um, there's, um, the, it's it's a traditional. In that case, it's a traditional mortise and tenon joint. Um, the neck block is inside the instrument. It actually joins the in, joins the neck block inside the instrument at a traditional square mortise and tenon joint. And then there are locking dowels across the tongue of the um, of the uh, neck. Tenon, um, Samoji does that in many of his instruments. And unless you cut a dovetail in the neck block before putting it in the instrument, 
you, 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 you can't do it any other way. And I did not want to join the neck onto a sloping curve that, that from an engineering standpoint, that just wouldn't work. So I had to figure out a way of joining it at, at a full flush, uh, square joint, whether it's a mortise and tenon or a dovetail doesn't really matter. Um, uh, so that's how I did that. So I fitted the neck and the neck block independently of the instrument. And then it's tricky, but um, then installed the neck block into the instrument and then cut away the uh, side of the instrument where the neck actually needs to join to the neck block. So it's tricky because you've got to get your angles correct. You, you, there, you can't make any compromises there. You, the neck angle has to be absolutely right. It has to be centered and so on. So you have to be able to do that with precision. And that was my solution. Um, other people have done other, other ways. Um, Kathy Wingert joins it in at least one of her instruments um, outside of the body of the instrument on, on a sloping curve like that. And that's that's cool too. I just like the way this looked, even though it posed some some craft challenges. Now, the dovetail it yeah. instead of a mortise and tenon. Now, were there failures in the beginning? Did it take you five tries or seven tries? Oh or? gosh, uh, to be honest, no. I made some mistakes, and I'll tell you about them. But they weren't serious mistakes, and there was not. There's not a structural failure to the instrument at all. It's still. It's have been under tension now for a couple of years. It's great, and it just sounds better all the time. Um, but be, look, I've been making wood joints for 45 <laughs> years now. <laughs> that that I got. Um, what I had not. Uh, I, I I didn't stabilize the case well enough. In, in putting it together. So it's a slightly bit, it's a slight, there's a slight distortion, not from the string tension, but from, but from, because nothing is square, it's all round and curved and it's tapered in every direction. So um, that was a bit of a learning curve. Um, I got that straight with the nylon harp guitar, but, um, and then in the, in the steel string harp guitar, there's an internal flying buttress that it's my invention. Um, it seems to work very well. I've never known other instruments that have this, though there may be some out there. There are people who know a lot more about these older guitars than I do. But um, absolutely parallel to the string path of the sub-bass strings is an internal arm. In this case, it's Cortison Ash that, that connects the head block to the tail block of the of the lower bout and it's absolutely parallel with the string paths underneath it there. And it only touches anything at the two ends. So it's free to vibrate in the middle. And on top of that, I scalloped pretty severely everything except the middle. So there's kind of like a weight in terms of wood in the middle of that brace. So what I was didn't want was to overbuild the guitars so much that it would just dampen the sound. So I tried to create something of a pendulum effect, allowing this big, heavy brace to vibrate. Um, and there is a danger that that vibration could create wolf tones and could conflict with other vibrations, but it hasn't. So um, you actually can see that brace through the side port in the sub-bass arm, and you can feel it vibrating. It's doing just what I thought. So my thinking was that with the extra mass in the middle of that brace, which is as long as the guitar is, um, 
and then it's thinned out, allowed to vibrate. It doesn't touch anything. It with it it uh, resists the string tension, yet it's also free to vibrate. So it picks up all the vibrations of both ends of the strings and the rest of the instrument. It works great. Um, that's kind of my crazy idea, but um, but it seems to work. Now, are the the main body of the of the instrument, the guitar portion, yeah, six string, mm-hmm. are those traditionally X braced, or did you lattice brace, or are they hybrids? Oh, good, um, both. <laughs> uh, they're not lattice braced, um, and it is basically this traditional steel string is tra- is basically on the top is a traditional X brace, but because it's a fan fret design and it's got sub bases, I had to modify that quite a lot. So that X brace is not symmetrically placed in the body of the main instrument, like you would see on a Martin, for example, Um, particularly because the bridge is like a little bit pushed back toward the heel, which is good and bad. Um, and it's at a pretty severe angle. So the, the geometry is adjusted a little bit, but the top of that instrument is fundamentally a basic X brace. And then it has a second X brace, which is more or less symmetrical to that, but much smaller behind the behind the, the X. You see some, some guitars with that. It's sometimes called a symmetrical X brace. Then it has a few little ancillary braces around that. And then there are some additional braces up on the guitar arm. The back, however, is radially braced. Um, now, the, w- my, the way I prefer a back to work is to, is to vibrate with the top and with the air inside, sort of like a slinky would, rather than have the back be a reflective surface. Mm-hmm. So uh, I like the back to get going with the instrument as well, like almost like a second soundboard, but it's responsive and the bridge. But... Um, like if you take a Martin bluegrass guitar, I mean, that's like a reflective panel back there. It's hard and it's stiff and it's meant for people who stand up and push it up against their belly. And it deads the sound. But I wanted this back to, to, to participate. And so it's radially braced and it's voiced. And that's one reason I like to sit down because it just sounds better. The minute you dampen the back with your chest or your belly, it, you, you lose a lot of the potential of, 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 the the instrument so it's it's radially braced it doesn't have the traditional ladder bracing that that most guitar backs have and it's very lightweight it's very lightly braced so the back is domed and from the center of that dome the braces radiate outward and in this case it has to be adjusted a little bit to accommodate the sub bass arm but that's the principle there and then there are there are vertical braces along the side to stabilize that, but uh, that that's how that's put together. Now, in your two six-string models, the double cutaway and the traditional single cutaway twelve fret, yeah, mm-hmm. what sound are you striving for oh, that's gosh. different from, say, what yeah. most everybody else builds? Oh, thanks. Um, you know, I'm me. I'm probably crazy about this, but you know, I don't have to build a career at this, and uh, because I'm I'm older now, and I'm I do this because I love it, and I sell a few instruments, and people seem to like them, and that's gratifying. So I'm not trying to just do the same thing that everyone expects. I'm trying to get an ideal that I have in my head that I like, and um, the way I tend to play and the way I tend to hear things is 
from a classical standpoint. So I like to hear the inner voices. I like to hear the clarity of polyphony and of counterpoint. I like to hear a baseline if there's if if there is a baseline rather than just bass notes. Um, at the same time, I just adore the sound of an acoustic steel string guitar with all of its richness and all of its tinniness and all of that. So what I'm trying to get is the clarity of, and this may seem like um, oxymoronic, but I'm trying to get the clarity of a classical guitar with that resonance and that sustaining power of a steel string, at least on the steel string guitars. And um, so the bracing and the whole approach is a little more geared toward the classical approach, classical guitar design, than the heavy um, steel string design. And the 12 fret is just something I'd like I'd, I'd like to do something a little bit differently and 12 frets are comfortable and I've played a lot of them. I just love the way they feel. And um, so that that's behind the 12 fret there. I, I'd like to do a 13 fret one of these days. Um, so the issues with the, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was going to say the issue with, with scaling, um, you know, people say, yeah, well, if you have a 12 fret, the bridge is going to be positioned better in the lower bout. But, you know, that all depends on the design of your lower bout. You know, if you're making martin copies all the time and you're just moving the bridge up and down that's true but um i'm interested in designing the instrument from the beginning and trying to grasp a kind of musical ideal in the instrument so you can design the instrument so the bridge goes wherever you want it to go um but if you have a you know the sound of an instrument is greatly influenced by the scale and by the available strings that are out there. So if you put a short scaled instrument, which is very common on a 12 fret instruments, and you put heavyweight strings on there, you it's a whole different experience for the player and a different sound. And think of the difference between in the electric guitar was between like a Strat and a Les Paul. I mean, it's huge. So the scaling is a key, key factor here. And that often is coupled with where where the fret which fret joins at the body now would would you describe your guitars as more finger style guitars or do they work equally yeah. well to strum um i i prefer finger style i've not yet put a pick guard on anything <laughs> um and i haven't built it with that kind of mass um because um, at least I'm not trying to make a bluegrass guitar. However, it should be able to, you should be able to pluck it with a pick of any kind, a thumb pick even, mm -hmm. and you should be able to dig in with some guts without without distorting everything. Um, so, uh, and I also tend to like a very low uh, string action. That's me personally. Um, so if someone were wanting to, you know, if someone were going to commission an instrument and they said outright that they're that they're a, a flat picker, you know, I would design that instrument differently. And we'd, we'd go with the heavier design, probably a higher action if they like that and certainly would get a pick card. But um, these are kind of delicate instruments so far. But you, I have played them with flat picks. I'm not very good flat picking, but but you can do it. Yeah. What are your favorite top and backwoods? Oh gosh, you know, um, I don't think that the wood choice is as big a deal as everybody says. 
it is important, yeah, and it is one of the factors that contributes to guitar sound. But there are lots of other factors as well, not least of which is the player <laughs> or the thickness <laughs> of the calluses on his fingers or what kind of shape his nails are in or where, how close to the bridge he plays, et cetera, et cetera. So how much does he squeeze with his left or her left hand? All of those are – or does he squash the back of the instrument up against his belly? <laughs> those, those play a huge role. Um, but um, the, the wood choice nowadays is – and then there, there, there's the, the issue of sustainability and the, the degradation of the tropical rainforest around the world. Um, I love East Indian rosewood. And of course, who can, who can criticize Brazilian rosewood when it comes to guitars? I mean, there's nothing better. Um, but uh, I can't ethically use that anymore. I, that's, that's a personal choice, and I don't want to sound like I'm preaching. But... Um, I've been to Africa. I haven't been to the Amazon, and I know what the situation, at least in Africa, is like. And and say in Indonesia, where a lot of these tropical woods come from, I can't ethically use them. Indian rosewood is a wonderful wood. It it, it bends well. It sounds well. It works easily. It looks gorgeous. And then, of course, Brazilian rosewood is like is is the holy grail. But I can't I can't ethically use them anymore. So. What I'd prefer to use are North American species that are uh, sustainable. So this one instrument is, is made with cherry, and people used to poo-poo cherry as being just a wood of convenience. But, man, it's wonderful. It sounds great. Um, or pear is a wonderful wood. They used to make in the 18th century, they made gombas out of pear. It's glorious. Maple is wonderful. And for the tops, I love the alpine spruce. I really do, though I made this nylon harp guitar which is essentially a classical guitar with a mild uh, fan fretting and four sub basses on a second neck to the same classical guitar body and uh that body sides and back is that is is a is a is a is is a curly claro walnut from oregon and that was wonderful that stuff bent easily and uh, it works wonderful and it's drop dead gorgeous and there's an engelman spruce top on that one um and that looks really good it sounds great it's not as hard as the uh, alpine spruce which i kind of like um and then the um the uh the other the 12 fret steel string has a lacewood back and sides. I got that just because I thought it'd be cool to do. Um, the lacewood was a pain to bend, and I eventually had to laminate the sides. Um, and I don't like working with the lacewood splinters at the drop of the hat. You look at it cross-eyed, and it bends on you. It's a mess. So that was a challenge. And that has a cedar, a western red cedar top. And when you tap the western red cedar, it rings. It just really sounds great, but it's hard to work. For me, I find it hard to work because it is so very, very soft and difficult to put a good finish on. And um, I'm not completely satisfied with it, but that's the way it is. So I think I will go back to the to the spruces. Um, and I've got another harp guitar going out there, which is Oregon Myrtle for the tops and sides, for the backs and sides, and uh, and a Sinker Redwood for the top. And we'll see how that that turns out i'm thinking the redwood is a lot like the western red cedar but this is redwood that comes from logs that have been fallen on the ground for decades again that that's an issue i just can't bring myself to 
cutting any fresh redwood. <laughs> well, and you may find, because I've owned three or four Sinker Redwood topped guitars, um, still own, oh gosh, two of them, I guess. What I find is it has the immediacy of cedar, but yeah. some of the zing or uh, tensile strength of Sitka or spruce, so it's kind okay. of that happy medium. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, I'm looking forward to to actually seeing what that's like then, yeah. Plus, it looks really cool. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. And I'm all about, not necessarily bling, but I love a, a guitar that looks well, cool. Well, sure. Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of instruments from many hundreds of years, and and it seems to me that any great instrument is also, by some measure, a beautiful instrument. So the idea of it's just a utilitarian thing probably is suitable for peasants, but for those of us in the civilized world, whatever that is supposed to be, beauty in every great instrument. So, uh, yeah, you can go overboard and it can become gratuitously decorative and so on, but, but there's an, you know, it, it should be beautiful, pleasing to eye and ear alike. Well, let's get into songwriting and composing. You studied uh, composition or composing at, at some yeah. point, more in the yeah. classical vein, but you're yeah. also a songwriter. In fact, we're mm-hmm. going to finish the show. You won't be able to hear it because our phone call will have ended, but it's one of the YouTubes that you put up where you you were performing in your studio. I think you did eight songs or something. Okay, the, um, yeah. And I'm playing the first one only because you introduce it, so I thought it would be fun one for everybody to, to hear at the outro, but... How did you get into, you, I think you mentioned that you've been writing music since a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Always been writing music. That's That kind of goes with the territory, I guess. Now, when you say but, writing music, do you mean just mm-hmm. notes or both? Both, both. Yeah. I, I've written, I don't, I mean, the whole singer-songwriter world, I admit, is kind of out, I'm out of my league to even try and get in that. Because I, I admire singer-songwriters and popular musicians tremendously because they're so fluent and they're so immediate with their music making. And uh, that's not necessarily the case with that mid-level musician in the classical world. At the highest level, music is music. But, you know, at the level where most of us have to try and make a living and so on, um, that immediacy, that joy, and that that fluency is kind of gone in the classical world. So I'm very much uncomfortable with uh, the singer-songwriter world because I don't feel that I'm up to speed with all these guys who can just play and play wonderfully well, and I have to work so hard at it. But having said all that, um, I just can't seem to stop writing songs, and that includes words. Um, I I, I get a kick out of playing with words and sometimes you can express something very specific in words whereas music is more general perhaps more soulful but but yeah with words as well and like in 2000 i was commissioned to do an oratorio for um the convent of the visitation in georgetown for their 200th anniversary so that was a huge piece and the score is 500 pages long but i did all the text and words for that and so it's not necessarily new, but um, I guess I'm just having more guts of singing that for people. But I've always written songs, a lot of novelty songs. But but yeah, it's something I love and can't. Well, the the few times that I you've performed at the Sunday Songwriter Series that uh, we've been doing for a number of years, mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. amazed at how good your lyrics and the way you 
combine both the guitar, in other words, the music bed, and the lyrics and to tell a story. The, oh. um, because I wasn't, I think the first time I heard you was at uh, one of the Dublin Roaster uh, open mics, and the, the whoever okay. was running it that particular day, the sound was not that great, so it was very difficult to hear. And then when you played at the Sunday Songwriters, your first song, you got about two bars in, and I was mesmerized. Oh, wow. Thank you. I'm surprised because I'm very self-conscious about doing that, especially in front of people like you. <laughs> well, you sell yourself short. You you sound terrific. Well, and I, I know in some of your YouTube um, concerts here that I've been listening to on Facebook, you say I'm not much of a singer. Yeah. But you actually are. <laughs> well, thanks. Because it Appreciate doesn't, it. you know, you don't have to be an opera singer or, you know. Right. It's how yeah. you how you use the vocal to mm -hmm. make the song, and you do a wonderful job at it. Oh, thanks! And I am so yeah. intrigued. You not only do you build guitars and harpsichords and forte pianos and pianos, and they, but you also build ukuleles. Yeah, I made a ukulele once. That was a commission. Um, yeah, I mean that's not it's not a huge jump to to from guitar to ukulele, but. Um, that was a as a young rock musician in in Rockville who just had a baby girl named Lily, and so um, we we put an inlay of a lily in the top of the top of the ukulele, and uh, had a pickup in it and a cutaway and everything else for this rock musician to play at weddings. But anyway, we don't call it a ukulele; we just call it a ukulele. <laughs> daughter. <laughs> Well, this has been fascinating to, to speak with you. The, Thank you. I, I got carried away listening and forgot to ask you some questions, which I'm okay. sure are just gone. It's a real now. pleasure. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Trust me. And the um, So tell everybody what your particular website is, and then also Emily's. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Um, mine is mkoguitars.com. It's pretty simple, mkoguitars.com. Um, I use the, my middle name or the initial because there's another musician out there named Michael O'Brien, and I just don't want any confusion in that regard. Um, and Emily has a couple of websites. Um, she not only is a fantastic musician and a pro in every regard and world-class when it comes to the recorder, uh, she also um, makes gig bags, and she's top of her line in that. She makes gig bags and pannier bags for bicycles and um, so she has a couple of websites here. If you're interested in a gig bag, guitar, she makes guitar gig bags. Um, um, that would be kanzanet.net. And um, the, the other one is dillpicklegear.net, something like that. <laughs> what a great name. And that's for, yeah, it's a, it's a name because all these cyclists, she's a bicyclist, long-distance cyclist. And at a certain point, it's a kind of a standing joke among all these long-distance bikers that they just crave a dill pickle. So <laughs> <laughs> the bike site is about is called Dill Pickle Gear. But And then um, I forget what her – I think it's just Emily uh, Emily's, emilyrecorder.com. Dot net, I think that. But if if anyone were to Google Emily O'Brien recorder, it'll, they'll come up. She'll come up. Well, let's see if I can find it here for you. The um, okay. bum, 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 bum. the Emily's Domain dot org. 
That sounds right. Yeah. Yes, emilysdomain.org. Uh, if someone is interested in purchasing not only the yeah. CD songs from home, which I can attest mm-hmm. to being wonderful, but some oh, of the other ones, and I haven't heard some of her other ones, so I, I'm going to. Oh, it's wonderful. See, I have to say that uh, when she came out with the with the fantasies for a solo for a modern recorder, I was blown away. And of course, as a father, I was like beaming and i was like just bursting with pride but uh it, it is really aside from all that it's really wonderful it's it's wonderful she can keep your attention musically for the entire length of that album and it's like more than an hour's worth of music there just playing that recorder and this believe me this is not honking out tunes like you heard in second grade now i'm noticing that the um the name of her record record company is cimarron rainbird records right. Uh-huh. Is there any significance yeah. to that? I'm sure there is. I don't know what it is. Um, but the story behind that that Kim told me was that uh, she was working with Stephen Bennett um, in Nashville many years ago. And Stephen, of course, is a force to be reckoned with. I mean, when it, you know, he's Chet Atkins and and, um, and uh, Tommy Emanuel. And he know, knew Chet, played for him, played with him. And, of course, he and Tommy are friends. Um, but... Um, he was trying to get a, a record contract with one of the companies in Nashville, and they, they gave him was a friend of his, and Kim was working for another company there. And um, they just said, you know, this is he's getting the raw end of the deal with, with this. I don't know what the company was, and I don't know the details of the contract, but it was like the record company was going to get in all the profits, and Stephen was going to do all the work <laughs> and not get much out of it and be the creative force behind it. So he and Kim said, well, this is crazy. We'll start our own, our own company. So uh, as Kim puts it, that's the beginning of Cimarron Rainbird Records. I don't know what the significance of that title is. I probably should ask her one of these days. But um, Well, it's a neat-sounding name. It is a neat-sounding name, right. And uh, she's a genius, so uh, if anyone is interested in recording, um, she, she's she's just great. And the list of people she's recorded is, is huge. And it includes Tommy Emanuel, which she did that just a year or so ago. And... Um, uh, gosh, uh, and she's wonderful to work with. So, and she has a fantastic studio. So, so if anybody is interested, check her out. And her name is Kim Person. As yeah, in, Kim Person. Yep. Mm-hmm. And as where person, yeah. where is her studio? Uh, in Southern Virginia, near Williamsburg. Okay. Yeah, not far. Beautiful part of the country. Yeah. Well, Michael, this has been wonderful. Thank you again. It's a pleasure, Todd. Thank you for having me. It's a real joy. And I look forward to coming down and seeing your workshop. I just, I am cool. not a woodworker, but I love the smell of it and I love the look awesome. of it. And I'd love to see some of the other instruments you've made. Awesome. Anytime, Todd, anytime. All right. Hopefully when this is over, we can get together in person again and make some music. Sounds good, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you, Todd. Bye. Bye-bye now. Well, that was Michael O'Brien, Michael Kent O'Brien. And... What a fascinating gentleman he is. I mean, what a terrific interview. And to end the show, I'm going to uh, let you hear a song that he did. It's the lead song from a Facebook concert he gave fairly recently. It's eight songs long. We won't do all eight. We'll just do the first one. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen. If If I recall, the title of the song is Memoirs. This should be fun. Um, let's see. Many thanks 
many thanks to Tommy and to putting this together and setting these things up. That's really cool. Um, everybody who's done this says just what I'm going to say right now. This is really weird. I'm looking at the camera there. No people around. Hope we can do this. It should be fun just the same. Um, I've got the camera positioned right now not on the selfie setting, so I can't really see the screen. It's positioned so that um, I set it up. I, I think there's a good picture up there, but I won't be able to see anybody's comments coming through. Um, it's not that I don't care, it's just that I can't see them. And so um, if you do send them, I'll look at them later and answer them as best I can. Got about, I don't know, eight or nine tunes here to, to share with you guys tonight. First one's about mountains, about farmers, There'll be some songs and some guitar solos. This one's Farmers, about some young men playing cards in Rocky Mountains, and about the red rocks changing colors in the setting sun. It's called Memoir. Stretched out the door, and old men pawed the floor. A man with a pen said, It's a deal. Granddad shook his hand and headed home. But the locust logs and the sugar pine boards couldn't keep the sheep from harm. The man with a pen said, Deal's a deal. In the end, he got the farm. There were farms and other stories, histories and mountains, and the mysteries of granddaddy's fiddle. Like a riddle, make you want to dance. Do you want to dance? Make you want to dance till the broad daylight. Do you want to dance? Make you want to dance. Do you want to dance with me tonight? It's all the lonely rangers, it's Paul Revere and the pioneers, cowboys chasing cowgirls and chasing windmills. It's all about the memories and old men having fun, and the red rocks changing colors, the red rocks changing their colors, yes the red rocks changing colors in the setting sun. By the campfire light of a Rocky Mountain night, some young bucks played at cards. My daddy said it was just a joke, but he licked his pride and he headed home. 
Then sleeping in the back of a 54 Ford, I traveled far and wide. My daddy said it was just a joke, but it'll be okay, son, it'll be alright. There were jokes and other stories, histories and mountains, and the mysteries of granddaddy's fiddle. Like a riddle, make you wanna dance. Do you wanna dance? Make you wanna dance till the broad daylight. Do you wanna dance? Make you wanna dance. Do you wanna dance with me tonight? The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link wispymopmusic.podbean.com and podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N so wispymopmusic.podbean.com or you may find it on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Daddy kept his job He learned to mince his words But now and then He'd tell a few And in the end He headed home And granddad grinned On his dying day When he turned to me to say Son, take my fiddle Play me a tune When you're done I'll be on my way There were tunes and other stories Histories and mountains And the mysteries of granddaddy's fiddle Like a riddle Make you wanna dance Do you wanna dance? Make you wanna dance Till the broad daylight Do you wanna dance? Make you wanna dance Do you Cowboys chasing cowgirls and chasing windmills. It's all the lonesome memories. It's old men having fun. And the red rocks changing colors. The red rocks changing their colors. The red rocks changing colors in the setting sun.